You know what happens when you flip a light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Welcome to No Power, and today we're interviewing Patrick Courier, who's a partner and co-founder of Mission Strategies, and also a good friend of mine. Patrick has really been at the forefront. He's been in private practice. He's been in this industry for a very long time, and he's spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill really helping congressional members digest some of these issues and make best policies. He cares about impact on communities. He was heavily involved in the Inflation Reduction Act, basically the certainty of these tax benefits for developers and making sure that we are providing benefits for investors so that we can move forward in this transition. Just really a phenomenal thought leader. Yeah, and the Inflation Reduction Act is really an energy policy lampooning as tax policy here, right? It provides tons of incentives for developing renewable projects, but it also looks at opportunities to incentivize things like citing new infrastructure and locating jobs in the tax base in former extraction communities or areas where you're going to take, say, a coal plant that's going to retire and recycle that facility into something new that can have sort of a second life here, which is really exciting for those communities. And I think one of the things that I took away from our conversation with Pat was just the value of good communication skills, being able to take what is a crazy complex system that we work in and to be able to distill that down into something that policymakers can get their arms around and really use as they're thinking through advancing these policies and how we want the energy industry to change over time. So great conversation for sure. I really enjoyed this discussion. And he also talks a lot about innovation. There's a lot of discussion about hydrogen, small-scale nuclear. We really touch on a lot of things that are at the forefront. So Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. So Patrick, maybe you could start off by just telling us a little bit about how you got here and your path and what you're most excited about working on lately. Yeah, happy to. And thanks, guys, for having me. I'm excited to be here. You guys are the last thing standing between me and my trip to Hawaii tomorrow. So I'm in a great mood and things are winding down work-wise. So you've got my full attention, which is nice. But yeah, so my background, longtime energy and environmental climate lawyer in Washington, D.C., a couple of different law firms in D.C., Van Ness Feldman and Hunton and Williams, spent six, seven years in private practice, a lot of administrative law, regulatory work for FERC and other federal agencies really cutting my teeth on the electric sector, power sector, particularly as it relates to the regulated utilities. So went from there to Capitol Hill and kind of got the policy bug and spent six years on Capitol Hill. I was a senior energy counsel for then chairman Fred Upton, Republican from Michigan, who is now retired. So spent six years on the committee. It was probably there more so than anywhere else where I really started to get exposed to the emerging technologies in the so-called energy transition. It wasn't just renewables, but like battery technologies, a lot of CCS work, advanced nuclear. But as a staffer, right, when you think about DC and Capitol Hill, 
You're just being lobbied constantly, people asking for meetings. But that's also how you learn about some of these other technologies that you've never heard of or even thought of because you just didn't think it was sort of technologically possible and certainly not cost effective, particularly when my mindset was sort of in the traditional, you know, coal, natural gas and and nukes. And that was kind of it. And so it was just really on my time at Capitol Hill, hearing from smaller startup companies and utilities who maybe wanted to get more into the renewable space and emerging technology space. And so that kind of was my catalyst when I left Capitol Hill to open up my first practice, focusing on really helping clean energy clients, advanced energy system clients, infrastructure clients, help them navigate Washington, D.C., both in the legislative branch and executive agencies to help bring their technologies to market and get past some of those regulatory and policy barriers that D.C. often throws in front of us. So I've been doing that for the last sort of in the private sector. I don't really practice traditional law anymore. It's more of the consulting side, the lobbying side, the advocacy side. But all that background over the last 15 years has really helped me provide a service to clients. And probably what I'm most excited about now is, I mean, it's really a lot of it. I mean, I'm really, we're doing a lot of cool stuff in the clean hydrogen space, which is interesting. And then of course, you know, on the transportation side with renewable fuels, sustainable aviation fuels and stuff like that. But there's a lot in the energy world right now to talk about. So I'll stop there and we can dig in. So that's an awesome intro. I really appreciate that fascinating way that you kind of found yourself into the role that you're in now. So can you talk to us a little bit? Like when you say you're helping clients to kind of navigate Capitol Hill and to sort of find their way through what I would imagine would be for an outsider or an entity that is sort of new to that space, a pretty challenging area to get through. What do you think about when you're sort of thinking about how to help clients through that? What does that process of navigating Capitol Hill look like to you? Yeah. So a lot of it is risks and opportunities. So we help clients identify risks, whether it's market, technological, or a lot of time regulatory and legal policy related. And we help them mitigate those risks by developing strategies either to create or change laws that would potentially mitigate those risks or work within the agencies to look at regs that might be impacting the business model, impacting the ability to deploy technologies and help, again, kind of mitigate that risk. The other side of it is the opportunities. When sometimes we'll have clients that say, man, if we could just do this one thing, we'd be off and running. And so we help clients, again, kind of identify where there's political support for their technology, whether it's based on geography or political party. We help them take meetings on Capitol Hill, sort of spread the message. And it's a long-term strategy, right? You're never going to get something done that's relatively novel in one Congress in one two-year session. So usually you're, you're laying the groundwork for something longer term to plant this seed up there so that members get excited about it because, of, hey, if I can do this one change to federal law, then maybe I can, this technology is really going to take off in my district, which means new jobs, which means new income, which means new, new tax revenue. And so it, you start with an idea on behalf of some of these clients, and then you kind of just pour water on it and let it grow and grow and grow on Capitol Hill. And, you know, 10 years later, you have a large infrastructure <laughs> ba- package or the largest Inflation Reduction Act, which is the largest spending in climate and clean energy that the U.S. has ever seen. And clients end up pretty happy at that point. I know most of our listeners are going to be very familiar with the IRA, but it would be interesting to hear your perspective on what were the real wins there? Because I think a lot of people think of it as energy legislation, but really it's not. It's tax legislation, but that is significantly benefiting the energy sector. Yeah. So when you think about the energy transition, yeah, it's the power sector, of course, 
the transportation sector, and then really sort of industrial and heavy manufacturing. Like those are the three areas when you're getting the most bang for the buck in terms of CO2 emission reductions. The power sector over the last 10, 15 years has actually been doing a really good job. Utility scale wind and solar, even rooftop solar. I mean, that just continues to grow and do great. Inflation Reduction Act certainly doubles down on that, but a lot of the money is going to transportation sector, as well as the heavy manufacturing industrial decarbonization space. So you think about like the production tax credit for hydrogen, like that really is like the holy grail to help decarbonize hard to decarbonize areas like shipping, like manufacturing, you think cement, concrete, aluminum, steel production, pulp and paper mills, those are emitting areas. And this hydrogen tax credit could help propel a clean energy economy to help those sectors decarbonize. Same thing on the transportation sector. Hydrogen certainly a component there. But you think about just you know some of the tax credits going for domestic production of material supply chains for the EV sector to really create a market in the U.S., not just for the cars themselves, but for the products and the guts that go into the car and the jobs that come along with it. So the power sector certainly is going to continue to ramp up and utilize what's in the the IRA. I call it the Inflation Reduction Act typically, so we don't get confused with the Irish Republican Army. But (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I know. So the Inflation Reduction Act, it's not just power, right? It's not just the generation side of the equation or really looking to, to be broader. And in this way, it's actually more of it's almost an industrial policy focusing on, on using the tax, right? The carrots approach as opposed to the sticks. And in some ways, because a lot of it is focused on domestic manufacturing, it's almost Trumpian and it's like American first vibe. And I'm not surprised Republicans don't like it, of course, because it's big spending. A lot of the messaging around it is on quote unquote green energy. But there's a lot there to help bolster domestic U.S. manufacturing that honestly it is. It's very sort of America first, bringing back those supply chains to the U.S. And so there's a lot of positive things that can come from that if Treasury gets it right. And that's kind of a big question mark because that's always the underlying issue with these types of transitions is certainty, right? Everyone talks about certainty, legal certainty, regulatory certainty. You can't really have economic certainty because markets are what they are. But certainty coming out of Treasury would go a long way to help be a catalyst to make sure the Inflation Reduction Act works. You're so right about that. Like I preach that in our relationships with our clients, whether it's with a regulator or with anyone else when we're interfacing with some of the larger power markets. It's like these entities, they would prefer yes, right? They can deal with no it's maybe that is the problem for them, right? And not having that clear line of sight to what the opportunities are, to what the risks are, right? That becomes a very, very difficult place, an impossible place, honestly, a lot of times for folks. And it sounds like you're kind of saying the same thing here is Treasury providing that clear line of sight to whatever the opportunities are, whatever the risks are, seems like it's kind of a gating item to unlocking the value of IRA. Am I thinking about that right? You are, absolutely. And certainty goes back, you know, in the energy industry for, you know, for several decades, but certainly in 2010 with the cap and trade waxman marky days of like, is there going to be this big economy-wide cap and trade policy? And utilities started to line up behind that to some degree because they wanted some certainty. It failed, obviously. And so we were left with a decade of like this back and forth between Republicans and Democrats, who's in office, who's the president, and like where we are in the international you know, world, the global scale, like we didn't really have any national energy policies. We still really don't. But hopefully with at least the carrots approach that the IRA is taking, you can have some level of certainty again if they get it right. You know, Patrick, you mentioned the Republicans don't like this and it feels like our 
our whole energy landscape has become so politicized. And I can understand why. I mean, so much of our economy depends on it. But part of what troubles me as a person who transacts in the markets every day is there's not a lot of focus on actual engineering when we're thinking about this stuff. And I'm wondering if you have any insight on, like, how can we change that? And how can we modify this discussion so it's not so polarizing? You know, like, we've got folks now that just won't invest in fossil fuels, period. But we need fossil fuels to get through this transition. Like, when you're talking about actual, like, running a power flow model, it's impossible to do it otherwise. Yeah. And engineering, like having more engineers in Capitol Hill certainly would be useful. But unfortunately, it's a lot of lawyers. <laughs> uh, so maybe that's part of the problem. We need more engineers to get elected, which would be useful, who actually understand the science and technology behind it and want to be involved. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Noah. The, the politicization is frustrating. And it's been like that for, again, probably since the Waxman-Markey days. But at least Republicans now, they're not denying the climate science, at least the majority of them anymore. But they are still having serious concerns and struggle with moving away from traditional resources. And a lot of that is just our country is so diverse geographically, but also from a resource perspective. And like, when you think about the coal communities in West Virginia, you think about in Montana, Wyoming, that rely on coal as their major export, not just to the US, but globally, like that is their economic livelihood. And so when we get into some of these battles that seem so partisan, it's often fighting for the constituencies that they were elected to represent. Now, I get it. Like when like the talking point is, oh, it's the Biden rush to green, the socialization of energy policy. And then on the other side, it's like all Republicans care about is just drilling, drill, baby, drill. Those talking points get old. They just get recycled, too. It'd be great if just some grownups could sit down in a room. But we did see that right with the infrastructure bill that did become law. And we had 18 Republicans in the Senate, including Leader McConnell. Connell, you know, support that bill. And so there are areas, same thing with the CHIPS Act, right? Like for semiconductors, you know, you saw some bipartisan people come together to actually, you know, put forward a good legislative product and get it across the finish line. Inflation Reduction Act was just using sort of the budget reconciliation process to create very, what I view as important changes to energy policy. It was just it's a budget gimmick that's usually not used to set kind of industrial policy like it is. And so that was just a turnoff to Republicans. So I guess the answer, in my view, yes, it'd be great if we could kind of get away from these talking points like the rush to green or Republicans only support polluters. But there are a strong handful, particularly in the Senate and a handful in the House, who can come together kind of behind closed doors and have some of these conversations that need to be had to get some things done. Yeah, you raise a great point that I want to key in on sort of the legitimate concerns on the economic impact that closing down thermal operations, coal plants, coal mining operations, fuel processing operations have on, on the communities where those are located. And there is a huge economic impact there. There are literally communities. I live in Pennsylvania, for example. I mean, you go out into the western portions of the state, there are communities where you see, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent of municipal budgets are funded by extraction activities. That's legitimate because people still have to go to school. You have to fund fire departments. You have to fund police stations and roads and things like that. I also think that there is a cultural identity that is associated with that, where these are people that have a very direct sense of place, a very direct sense of person. I have been a coal miner my whole life. My father was a coal miner. My grandfather was a coal miner. And it's like, we have to be cognizant of that, is that, yes, if we're focused on the reality that the planet probably needs us to do, not probably, definitely needs us to do our 
you know, lifestyle in a way that is less carbon intensive than it is now to be cognizant of the reality that we are asking individuals amongst us or communities amongst us to burden the majority of that change. It's easy for me to say my lifestyle sort of just becomes greener because I put some solar panels on the roof of my home versus, hey, the entire like makeup ideologically identity-wise and also economically of my community will change if this coal mine goes away or if this extraction type of business goes away. How do you manage that? Like, Do you see that as a part of the conversation that's important to sort of driving through some of these policies that you're trying to advance? Yeah, absolutely. You know, first of all, I think a lot of these communities who've been energy producing, whether it's coal, natural gas, oil, they deserve a big thank you. I mean, the global economy is built on the backs, as you said, generations of families who have done this. And so instead of disparaging them and say what they've done is family line of work for, you know, a couple of generations is a terrible thing. It's a big thank you for, you know, building this. Doesn't mean like we stick with it forever because again, I'm not an environmentalist. No one will accuse me of being an environmentalist, but I am a futurist, right? I don't want to be barred from thinking about what the future could look like because we're so stuck in what used to work, right? If that was sort of everyone's mentality, we'd still be riding horses, right? We'd, instead of really <laughs> thinking about the automobile. But these communities, and I think the difficulty has been Democrats recognize this and the Inflation Reduction Act actually has a lot of good tax credits. Like if you are building in a energy community defined as something that either has, you know, you're transitioning from coal to natural gas or you've retired coal in the last few years, there are additional benefits, adders that you get for putting steel on the ground to develop new energy projects or new projects in those communities. And so there has been a strong recognition by policymakers that we cannot leave these communities behind who might get left behind by this transition so that giving them the tools that they need to either start producing solar panels or start producing batteries in the facilities or EVs. And so there is a recognition that these communities need to be taken along with the transition. The problem is, is that when you were, as you said, Mike, when you're taking away sort of this cultural identity, it's just going to take time to kind of move away from that. I think West Virginia is a perfect example of this. You know, they've really enticed a lot of storage technology into their space. They're really embracing the transition. I mean, they're also making a decent bit of money right now exporting coal to China. But I think they have really looked at, okay, how can we make this useful for our state? Yeah, and Manchin's been their biggest advocate. And he might lose his reelection because of his work on the Inflation Reduction Act. But at the same time, there has been you know, some announcements specifically for West Virginia that they probably wouldn't otherwise get, but for the Inflation Reduction Act. And that's going to be true in a bunch of other red states as well. We've seen new announcements, particularly for battery manufacturing, EV manufacturing in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, right? In Georgia, we've seen announcements in very red North Carolina areas. We've seen investments in Michigan. We've seen investments in Arizona. So there's some red and purple states that are going to be beneficiaries of this. And in that way, it's somewhat analogous to Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act, right? It's like a lot of Republican governors kind of rejected it at first. Federal policymakers certainly did. But then like once they saw there was money there and there was opportunity there and that their (laughs) citizens would benefit from it, I was like, all right, well, I don't want to vote for this thing, but you know, I can at least take advantage of it, which means it makes it harder to ultimately unwind, which is why we've seen some of the Affordable Care Act have the staying power that it has. And it's my sense the Inflation Reduction Act will also have staying power because there's just there's just enough investment being driven into some of these red states and districts where they might publicly say, I hate the Inflation Reduction Act, there's this socialism, rush to green. But behind the scenes, when they see those jobs being developed, those projects developed in their states and districts because of the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits, they're not going to actually vote to repeal those. I mean, 
That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I wonder too, if the Venn diagram between ESG investing, the IRA and like heavy manufacturing, energy intensive economies kind of overlap here. Cause we've been involved in some M&A transactions on behalf of clients where the deal made sense on paper, like the numbers penciled out in a way that it was a compelling narrative, but based upon investor sentiment where they were looking to invest in lower carbon, no carbon types of opportunities, they kind of couldn't get past sort of that mandate from their investors. You were talking earlier about green hydrogen and sort of the bent of green hydrogen towards some of those heavier manufacturing places. Do you feel like this is sort of an opportunity to unlock private sector investment by saying, hey, let's take away the constraint on sort of the green side and focus on this is a hell of a paper mill that is like an economically viable opportunity. But we're saying that we have a new pathway here to sort of satisfy both needs throughout the transition. Yeah, I would think so. And so when I say talk about clean hydrogen, I also mean like blue hydrogen, right? So that's the natural gas using, you know, technologies of autothermal reformation, for example, where you can get a much cleaner version of hydrogen than you can just through traditional steam reformation. So blue hydrogen, I think is actually going to be probably the, the larger driver because that's going to be more cost effective. Under the IRA, green hydrogen, which is hydrogen that uses basically renewable energy for an electrolyzer. So it's 100% clean, zero emissions, right? That's just going to be even with with a $3 production tax credit from the IRA, it's still going to be cost prohibitive in a lot of circumstances. So the, the base case for me is, can we prove blue hydrogen using natural gas to create at scale a clean energy economy, a clean hydrogen economy, I should say, that can really drive some of the decarbonization in some of these areas and hopefully appeal to investors who finally realize that with this additional subsidy, it not only pencils out, it actually makes money. But there's a lot of questions around hydrogen too, in terms of infrastructure and everything else, right? And so that's a big question mark in my mind is, you know, what's that infrastructure? It's one thing to generate it, but how do we actually get it to the markets that we need to go? Because you can't just, you can retrofit natural gas pipelines, but it's, again, it's an additional cost. So then you're just relying on trucks or rail. Do you think it's the government's role? I mean, to me, you know, we had the wind production tax credit and now we've got different tax credits for actually producing, which have sort of kind of veered the discussion a little bit. The government's role to kind of subsidize some of these technologies as they're emerging so that they can gain some investor confidence, because that seems to have been a pathway we've taken for a while, and it seems to be working quite well. When you recognize a problem, right, in this case, you think climate, but it wasn't even before climate, you think about just traditional criteria pollutants. And how do you protect public health and welfare? Because like, normally I'd say, you know, as sort of a good conservative, like, yeah, we don't want the government to put their thumb on the scale to pick winners and losers. But when you are trying to solve a problem, the market sometimes does not bake in those externalities. And so you do need some government support for these emerging technologies to get them off the ground. But then you have to eventually say, all right, sink or swim. So I, you know, the wind tax credit is a good example. Like it's been around since 1992. I was a proponent in early 2010, like when we were having those negotiations, like phase it out, which they did. And then a couple more Congresses go, people forgot about the phase out. Now it's back, right? Like, so there has to come a point where technologies have to be able to support themselves on their own. I mean, you guys know working in PJM and the markets with negative pricing because of wind, because of the tax credit that they get. I mean, that creates an advantage for them to the detriment outside of traditional market mechanisms to other technologies that could otherwise compete. And so 
federal financing support through subsidies to a point. And that at some point, you just got to let these technologies grow up and mature on their own or just, you know, get out of the way. I will say I agree with you. I think part of the problem with wind is that we haven't incorporated into our own wholesale markets mechanisms to allow them to recoup that cost for providing certain attributes. I think people forget, too, that the energy markets are still very junior. They've only been around, at least the wholesale market's only been around 25 years. And so now we're asking them to absorb all these externalities, and they're still kind of maturing as markets with these sort of complicated pieces fitting in like new legislation subsidizing certain assets over others to solve this problem. But, you know, the market really can only absorb what you price into it. So part of it is it feels like we've never really gotten comfortable with attribute pricing. And I don't know if the Hill... I won't disagree with that. Yeah, that's something the Hill would not... I mean, they'd say, do go talk to FERC, right? Go talk to the RTOs and ISOs to let them work it out. The best you'll get in Congress is somebody directing FERC to do that, as opposed to trying to solve the problem. Just probably, again, we don't have engineers, we don't have economists. So you probably don't want Capitol Hill weighing in with too much specificity on an issue like that. If anything, you can get their attention about it and direct FERC to study the issue, hold a technical conference or you know, go through a rulemaking process. But yeah, traditionally, you're just not going to get lawmakers on either side of the aisle to get into the weeds on sort of that type of issue. So I got, I got to ask you, man, we work in a really complicated, super in the weeds industry. How do you explain this stuff to Congress people, senators? Like, how do you, how do you distill this down into sort of an every person kind of language to try to get that point across? Yeah. So never easy, but a lot of it. So when you're trying to sell against certain constituencies, you think about the messaging, right? From Democrats, you know, it tends to be, let's talk about the environmental benefit of something. With Republicans, it's often the jobs and economic benefits of something. So you try to distill it into what they value most and not unsurprisingly, both value reliability quite a bit. And so that's actually an easy way to talk about some of this is, oh, energy storage. You don't like renewables, but you should like you should like storage because it's resource neutral, technology neutral, and it helps uh, level out intermittent renewables and can still be used for natural gas and, and other technologies as well. And it provides more reliability and resiliency. But reliability is a very easy thing for members to understand because did the lights come on or not? If there's a power outage, did the power come back on in 20 minutes, an hour, five days? And so it's a very real life thing to be like, does my Wi-Fi work <laughs> or can I charge my cell phone? And so when you talk about, you know, certain technologies being more reliable than others, that's an easy way. And then jobs and economics, as opposed to like the engineering behind how systems work. But certainly the system itself, at least when we're talking about power, has gotten more complicated, right? It used to be sort of this vertically integrated system, large scale generation across the transmission line, down the distribution system to your house. And now we still have, you know, large scale utility scale units, but we have a bunch of other things, you know, on the distributed side that are being tossed into this to certainly make it more complicated to talk about when we go from this centralized to this disaggregated type of system. And it also has, you know, some warts with it too. And some of that does affect reliability. So I'm curious about two things. I know that there was some money in the Inflation Reduction Act for transmission, but I'm curious sort of what the background discussions were, because, you know, you've got some folks that are really advocating for we're going to need additional transmission as we integrate renewables. Was there a lot of discussion being had on Capitol Hill on how do we figure out that piece? Yeah. And so 
transmission permitting generally. And by the way, the Republicans passed their energy bill today on the House floor, uh, which they've been working on. So it's an energy permitting bill for the most part. It's a lot of oil and gas, but there is some very significant permitting reform pieces to that uh, related to NEPA and getting past some of the issues that we've had with permitting. Nobody expects the bill to go anywhere in the Senate, but it's at least a starting point to talk about permitting. The oil and gas stuff probably ultimately gets jettisoned because it's just too red meat. But the permitting, which conversations that go back to last Congress, now you have the opening sort of salvo from the Republicans on the House. This is going to open the door to some of these conversations. But it's with the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, the infrastructure bill, there was a lot stronger language on transmission. And there was a lot more money. A lot of that got cut because they wanted it to be part of a larger permitting discussion so that it wasn't just for renewables and transmission. It was also going to be for oil and gas pipelines and other infrastructure as well. And so we're kind of going back to the table on that. And transmission to me is probably one of the, the most important pieces to make all of this work. You cannot have a clean energy economy, advanced energy economy. And again, not just renewables. I'm talking about advanced nuclear. I'm talking about CCS, both for coal and natural gas, clean hydrogen. You can't have a process that takes 10 years to build transmission lines. It just makes no sense. You know, Again, it's traditional fuels or, or renewable fuels. And most large-scale transmission projects take anywhere between 18 years to get permitted before we even put steel on the ground. And that's just a problem. And Democrats recognize that. Republicans recognize that. The difficulty is what do you do about it? Because as you know, under the Federal Power Act, it's very different from the Natural Gas Act, which provides, Natural Gas Act provides FERC eminent domain authority to ultimately cite these pipelines. So you can bypass, if the states and local landowners and everything just you know say no, eventually FERC can give you a certificate and be like, sorry, like pipeline's getting built. Transmission does not have that. And now trying to go back and reverse that with all the state PUCs, like there's going to be so much pushback if you try to give the Federal Power Act the same level of authority that you do under the Natural Gas Act. And they've been trying it for a couple of years. They've kind of been nibbling at the edges with what we call natural interest corridor designations, where in certain areas, DOE and FERC has a little bit more authority to cite these lines, but only after like a two-year process with stakeholders. So it's really a tough thing to sell and to change. And you have to get all the different interests involved, both the utilities, you want to have the right of first refusal over building transmission lines versus the merchant transmission builders versus the local farmers and landowners who don't want any transmission, the state PUCs who like to have the ability to say no when a line is crossing their state, but they get no monetary or reliability benefit because there's no wires connecting their state. It's just, they're just, you know, a highway. So Transmission to me is like the third rail issue that needs to be resolved. And it's certainly a top priority for Chairman Phillips and FERC, you know, both for the transmission build out, but also for the interconnection queues. Like all of that just needs to be sorted out by smarter people than me. Oh, totally. And I completely agree with that. I was speaking on a panel not too, too long ago on transmission build out and people were asking me, do I think that we like need more transmission? We have this big, robust transmission grid that's out there. And my reaction to them was, this was a panel particularly about PJM and the 500 kV and higher backbone. So if we think about how these grids operate, the super high voltage stuff, that is like your turnpike or your highway, right? That is what's moving power long distances across the grid. And then lower voltage stuff, 138 kV, for example, kind of brings it down off of the highway onto sort of local roads so that it can get into your community. And then ultimately your driveway is sort of the distribution system, right? The lower voltage stuff. 
The 500 kV backbones in PGM, most of those were installed in the 1970s. And sort of my analogy was, last summer I saw the Grateful Dead play at Citizens Bank Park here in Philadelphia, and it was an awesome show. I had a really great time, but those guys are old. They were also installed in the 1970s, right? So if we're thinking about sort of the reality of this technology, whether it's today or tomorrow, ultimately we're going to have to think about replacing this stuff, right? Any machine that is sort of looking at sort of being that old, right? Where we're talking about 50-year-old technology, your oven, your car, whatever, right? You know, you might have a very, very killer 1970s Shelby GT Mustang. It looks awesome, right? You love it. It's not a Tesla. And that the reality of it is, is that it's very different. And I think that this conversation is like happening at a very important time for us. When we look at like large sections of our energy infrastructure are just approaching the ends of their useful life. We have to have this conversation and it abuts the universe of the energy transition, which is sort of driving from another angle, but sort of arriving at the same place. Completely agree. I'm going to have to steal that analogy. Yeah, I really like that. <laughs> there you go. You can have it. Take that with you. You can use that down on the hill for sure. I don't like they installed in the 70s or 80s, though. That hits a little too close to home, I think. No, the 80s, yeah, the 80s, I think 80s I that stuff is like very, the 70s, yeah. So. <laughs> the no, 80s no, is early, the 80s. We're good in know. the 80s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Early 70s. Early 70s. And, right. and you think too, Mike, just like where a lot of the new energy production is, right? It's in the desert Southwest. It's in the Great Plains, right? It's very rural areas where they just do not have existing infrastructure, transmission infrastructure. And so when able to get those new cleaner generation resources to load centers got to build, right? So in addition to replacing or modernizing the existing stuff that's been there since the 70s, you got to build large new stuff too, particularly in the, in the Western side of the state, West of the Mississippi. So again, like, how do you solve that? And you have to take a very academic, intellectually honest of where the barriers are. And it, it's NEPA is a problem. NEPA is absolutely a problem. Some of these other federal laws, are just the morass of laws that they have to get anything done and the lack of interagency coordination and then the lawsuits. So even if you get through NEPA, you get through the actual federal siting side of things, you're still subject to lawsuits for these projects, those permitting decisions by agencies who have evaluated the environmental impact statement for four years then they get sued for basically giving it the green light. And then that hangs up things in court. And so what you see from these permitting bills is an interest in revising not just sort of the NEPA process itself, but on the back end, the ability to litigate these things into non-existence and at least have more timelines and deadlines on what judicial review might look like, limiting some of the citizen suits. Again, there's not some that are valid out there, but sometimes the objective is just to just keep things from getting built. And that's just not where the U.S. needs to be when we're talking about a transition that's this important. No, without a doubt. So if you were able to like kind of wave a magic wand and it sounds like you're a big proponent of the IRA, that there's a lot in there to like, I love the way that you've kind of categorized it as less of an energy bill and more of sort of an infrastructure and almost jobs bill in a way. But if you were to sort of take the next step and you could do unfettered, whatever it is that you wanted to, what would the next piece be? Would it be permitting? Would it be somewhere else? Like what is the next big fix that kind of is the unlocking or the removal of that barrier that gets us moving in the right direction? Okay. I think I'm going to be like a kid and use my magic wand to grant myself two more magic wands. Perfect. <laughs> for me, it's I like, love I like it. It. there's technological, there is regulatory and legal, 
And then there is political. Technological, if I had a magic wand, like, let's just get fusion power, baby. Like, if we could break <laughs> the nut on fusion, it, we'd have unlimited power. We'd have no waste other than, you know, some helium and short-term radioactive, short-life radioactive waste. And like, we'd be rocking and rolling. But that's, fusion's been 10 years away for 20 years. Any day now. So then, yeah. So then I think about the regulatory and the legal and permitting, as we talked about, we went into some nuance there. And so I, we don't need to relitigate that, but that permitting needs to be resolved. And I'm hoping that we will have like that gang of eight, gang of 16, whatever it is in the House and Senate who can come together and come up with some bipartisan solutions that actually get enacted. We'll see how this Congress goes, but it probably bleeds into next Congress. So that's a big sort of regulatory. Well, I guess there's another regulatory issue that I've been thinking about is Yucca Mountain. That to me, because I've worked on that for a long time, both on the Hill, in the law firm world, as well as on behalf of utility clients today. The law says nuclear waste has to go to Yucca Mountain, and it does not, and it probably never will. So figuring out Yucca Mountain stuff and where our repository should be is probably one of those regulatory barriers that if I had a wand, I'd be like, all right, like get out, get the regulatory barrier out and just put the waste where it's supposed to be according to the law. Then the political wand is, again, kind of what we discussed already is just having cooler heads prevail when it comes to this. I'm not suggesting that we need a national energy policy because I think we are so regionalized based on our resources and our politics that it's going to be hard to have a general national consensus on energy. But I do think, you know, some of the rhetoric, a lot of the rhetoric, not just on energy, but on a lot of the issues, tough issues facing our country, what whether it's abortion or gun control or other issues, like we just need to have the people that we elect going there to actually try to solve some of these issues as opposed to trying to divide. And again, I do think there's some really good people up there who are willing to do this. And I think energy is a good area to find some common ground. And there's been some precedent for that recently with the infrastructure bill, as well as the CHIPS Act. I will say, I don't think the press helps. I mean, that's really part of the reason Mike and I started this podcast is energy oh becomes so right. politicized. And I was seeing all these headlines and most of it was inaccurate or unnecessarily inflammatory and didn't get into any technical information. So that was really why I texted him and said, you should start a podcast. And he said, well, I'll do it if you co-host it with me. But, you know, that's... <laughs> I, I love that, Noah. You're absolutely right. Like, when you think about the people who died during those Texas winter storms a couple of years ago, or last winter, and how politicized it got so quickly. Everything coming out of Capitol Hill was like, Texas wind policies did this, killed people. <laughs> what? They even had the governor of Texas going in front of like cameras talking about how green energy, which Texas has a fantastic record on, being unreliable and the cause of all this when that just was not the case. Maybe there were some elements about that, but it was frozen pipelines and the inability to get natural gas delivered. That's the largest issue, but like it became so political so quickly. And that's on energy issues where people died. And like that's what people hear from their leaders. And that's just a problem. I think we have a real issue in this country where people just want to point the finger at someone. I mean, the ERCOT board got displaced. The ERCOT CEO got, like they completely destabilized the organization they actually needed to have more confidence in and support those people to get through the next wave of policy changes so it doesn't happen again. And it just, there is this whole, we got to figure out who did this and make sure they pay for that. And at least these inflammatory talking points instead of focusing on solutions. And, And unfortunately, I still don't think we're focusing on great solutions in Texas. 
Yeah, you guys probably know better than I do. I know you track it on a daily basis. But yeah, just inevitably in Congress, what they're going to do is say why Texas is so much. There's going to be a hearing probably. California versus Texas, right? <laughs> Texas <laughs> Texas is the model sure. for what we should be tracking. Again, just to score political points. And again, that's not the adult conversation we need to have on these issues. Just to emphasize that point, right? The most solar installed in the last year happened in Texas, right? The highest penetration of renewable resources in any region happened in Texas. So like, let's be really clear. We can have the conversation about California versus Texas, green versus not green, if we want to sort of try to color it that way. But the facts would tell you otherwise, right? California has had policies in place to advance renewable power far longer and in a much more robust way than Texas has. But there is more wind installed in Texas than there is anywhere else on our grid right now. And it's important to recognize that, that this is a marbleized shade of gray. And so when you start to hear that kind of contextualization, take a step back, pause, think about it, look for those facts and say, hang on, is it really that simple? It's not. And Texans pay a fraction of the cost that Californians pay for power, like a minuscule fraction. Oh, I know. You would know being out there in LA, they know, huh, right? It's really, I mean, you know, Patrick's is in LA as well. And nobody wants to talk about that for some reason. They just tell me California is a thought leader where 2% of the population is paying 99% of the taxes. I I just don't think it's a viable long-term model, but that's just my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, Texas is a good example in terms of like the ability to deploy renewables. It just seems like this strange backlash against them doing so. You know, it just seems odd to me. And again, just about scoring political points. So, you know, we've talked about a little bit, you know, Texas, we've talked about communities, we've talked about, you know, what happened in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. How do you feel about all of this for underserved communities in general? I know that that's been a new focus for both legislation as well as policymakers at the organized markets and at the agencies. Are we doing enough there? What more can we do to help those communities that are underserved? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we haven't done enough, right? That's been a longstanding issue that no one really even talked about, right? It was just like a other side of the tracks. That's where you put the power plant, right? And they don't have political power. They don't have economic power. So what are they going to do about it? And so finally, you know, over the last 10 years, probably less, probably the last five years, you've seen more recognition of that. And a lot of the issues too come down to not just at the power sector, but transportation and light industrial, and heavy industrial, because that's where you see a lot of this. Power plants are more increasingly, the central plants in the city, like that's not really as much of an issue anymore. They're, they are more rural. The stuff that's closer to the city tends to be rooftop and other types of technologies that are cleaner. But the transportation sector and that local ground ozone, volatile organic compounds like for gasoline engines is terribly problematic. And then you think about siting like petrochem facilities and other manufacturing in some of these areas, like that is where you're having serious issues. Again, not carbon related, just typical criteria pollutants or worse, groundwater pollution, 
as we've seen with the, the huge topic about PFAS right now, you know, cancer causing concentrations are so high in some of these communities, just in the water, you know, typically that's not related to power sector necessarily. It's more to some of these heavy manufacturing that seems to be in these communities or some of the, the transportation related, whether diesel trucks coming in and out of these facilities to haul product, you know, causing some of those issues as well. So there is obviously a focus on it, but all of us, I think, have to be you know, more interested and stay engaged on this issue. Awesome. Patrick, anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover or anything that you wanted to sort of re-answer there? Any other thoughts from you? No, this has been fun. I mean, I guess the last closing argument so that this is just a great sector to kind of be in. It's been very dynamic over the last 10 years. Again, this sort of traditional, which is what I started in in 2005 at a law school to where we are now, it's still a slower process than probably a lot of people want. But in my view, you know, I think the U.S. is a leader in this space. And, you know, because of some of the policies that have been put in place over the last couple of years, including most recently in the last year with the Investment Infrastructure and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, we are on a path by 2030 if these investments go into the ground, create real jobs to have the cleanest energy system in the world, the most advanced energy system in the world that thinks really all of the above in a lot of ways. But then just on the onshoring of jobs and critical minerals, to me, just given the vast resources that I have can really just be a change for our economy moving forward in a lot of ways. It's going to have a lot of benefits, not just on the energy side, but just domestically generally. So I'm very bullish on the future. And a lot of it comes back to the energy sector, which of course we all happen to work in. So I'm only slightly biased. (laughs) Great spot to be. I love it. Thank you. It's been awesome having you on here and getting to hear your perspective. And just it really gives me renewed confidence in the bipartisan approach that we're hopefully moving towards. It can be done. There is willingness there and there's problems that need to be addressed. So it just it happens behind closed doors. Often you've heard how the sausage is made and usually it's in the cloak room off the Senate floor or something like that. So the rhetoric is one thing, but there is work being done. Well, thank you. Well, Patrick, I'm so happy to hear that you have solved partisanship. If you could get on to Cold Fusion for us, please, we would really appreciate that. So that's, so that's next. Get that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thanks, guys. Thank you both. I appreciate it. This is fun. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power.